You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. to be done. His will in our lives. Nothing else will settle us. Nothing else will satisfy us except His perfect will. How do I get that? Prayer. Prayer, faith, and obedience. That's how we get God's perfect will. By praying to a God who hears and a God who sees. Pray. We need to get reacquainted with the power of prayer that the Lord has given us. In your journey with Jesus, do you always put His kingdom first? Are you always furthering the gospel in everything you do? Today, Pastor Dave illustrates that you must always be seeking God's will in your prayer life. It's not enough to go your own way and think that everything will be okay. Put God's ministry first in your life. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 12 as he continues his message, Reacquainting the Church with the Power of Prayer. Upon returning to Rome, he was imprisoned by Tiberius, who was emperor at that time, because he made some critical remarks against the empire. But after Tiberius died, he had a childhood friend by the name of Caligula, who came to power and freed him from prison and gave him a fortune in gold. Soon, this Herod became ruler of some of the Palestine providences. When Caligula died, he was succeeded by another friend, Claudius. And Claudius made Herod the ruler of Judea and Samaria. So you can see where he's coming from. Herod was a politician. He would do as the Romans did only when he was around Romans. Though he was Jewish only by race and not conviction of the heart, naturally, when he was with the Jews, he acted like a Jew. So maintaining his popularity with the Jews was the most important thing on his agenda since he was the governor of that area, the king of that area. He saw Jewish Christians as divisive and believed that their activities would be disturbance to people, so he had James arrested and executed. It says in the next verse, then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. According to the Mishnah, you only execute somebody with the sword when they are either a murderer or an apostate. That's what they believed James to be. That's what they believed all Christians to be, apostates, because they left the Jewish faith to follow Jesus. But they didn't really leave their faith. It's because they didn't understand that. Herod got just what he wanted from his action. He became widely popular with the Jews. Why? He was a man pleaser. Beware of this kind of peer pressure. Beware of this kind of peer pressure that leads you to please people and not God. Pilate did the exact same thing. Pilate was a people pleaser. Back in Mark 15, 15, he says he wanted to gratify the crowd. In other words, he wanted to give the crowd what they wanted, so he gave them Barabbas and took, sent Jesus to the uh, cross. It's frightening what this peer pressure can lead people to do. I believe that's what's happening in Iran today. I believe that's what's happening. Here a Christian pastor is being detained and possibly executed for his faith. 
This is making the extremist Islamic government very popular with other extremist governments, which happen to be most of the Muslims in the world. He's becoming very, very popular because of stand against Christianity. Bring it home. How do you act when you're with your friends outside of church? How do you act when you're with your friends outside of church? You act one way with them, sitting around the coffee cooler, cutting up, listening to all the foul jokes, laughing, talking about people and stuff like that. And then when you come in on Sunday morning, Sunday saints, Monday ain'ts, what is your life saying about what you do? What is your life saying about who you are? Do people on the outside know you're a Christian? How do they know you're a Christian? Because you say so or because you act accordingly? James was beheaded because he was a Christian. That was the only reason he was beheaded. We have no idea whether James was asked to deny Jesus Christ. We only know that he was beheaded. In an instant, James was gone. He was gone. This must have been extremely difficult for the new church. James becomes the first apostle to be martyred into the kingdom. And every other subsequent apostle, save for John, will be martyred into the kingdom, including the apostle Paul. Every one of them will be killed for their faith. Every single one of them. And John somehow escapes by the will of God. Not that they didn't try, but he escapes and is banished to the island of Patmos. And praise God he is, because that's where he writes and sees this beautiful revelation of Jesus Christ. Imagine how difficult it was for John, his brother. Don't you remember their nickname? Jesus in Mark 3.17 called them the sons of thunder. Because they said, shall we cast down lightning upon these people? <laughs> you know, because he wanted to fry some people who were, who were ticking them off. So Jesus says, you're the sons of thunder. They must have liked that. They, yeah, we're going to get t-shirts put up like that, you know. We're going to walk around. That's going to be cool. Yeah, sons of thunder. Now with one word from a mad man, John's brother James is gone. He's dead. The entire church must have been in a state of shock. How could this have happened to one of our leaders? Throughout Scripture, Jesus never promises that our lives would be free of tribulation. He never promises that our lives would be free of affliction. And he never promises that our lives would not be free of physical death. That is not promised in the Scriptures. He said, we would have tribulation in the world. Jesus always warned his disciples that know the cost of following him. Do you know what it costs to follow Christ? It may cost you your friends. It may cost you some of your family members. It may cost you your co-workers, your people at work. It may cost you everything and why not? Did not God give everything for you that you might be one of his children? Beautiful, beautiful verse in Matthew 20, verses 20 to 23. A wonderful story of a mother sticking up for her two children. I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there. Then the mother of the Zebedee sons came to him with her sons. Kneeling down and asking something from him, he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. She's talking about James and John. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink from the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? They, meaning the two boys, said to him, we are able. So he said to them, hmm, you indeed will drink of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. What's Jesus saying here? 
Maybe James and John answered too quickly. Because in this passage of Acts 12, we see that James indeed drank of the cup of Jesus Christ. He was martyred for his faith, and he was killed into the kingdom. He did fulfill that prophecy of Jesus. It happened. Must have been a tough time for the church. But Herod wasn't finished there. He was on a roll. Herod was on a tear, man. He thought he was doing great. Look at verse 3. And because he saw, he being Herod, that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was the days of unleavened bread. Since it pleased the Jewish leaders and the followers so much, Herod decided, hey, I'm not going to mess with a good thing. I'm going to go out and grab somebody else. So he goes out and he grabs Peter and he arrests him. Herod was probably thinking, hmm, got to keep this popularity thing going. This is working pretty good. I'm going to get some mileage out of this. He even kept Peter under special guard. Look at verse 4. So when he arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Four squads? took that many for one guy? Four squads? Are you kidding me? Was he afraid of Peter that much? Well, well, maybe, just maybe, Herod was told that the last time Peter was in jail, back in Acts 5, I believe it is, I have it tagged here, he uh, disappeared. And maybe Herod thought, he's not getting away from me this time, and he put four squads in there. Satan must be doing flip-flops. He was probably thinking that he finally made some headway with these Jesus freaks. He said, well, I'm getting, to, I'm getting to the core there. I had him on the run. I'm going to put an end to this Jesus thing. I'm going to put an end to it right now. They're on the run now. As soon as the feast was over, Peter was going to be tried. And I knew he's going to be convicted, and they're going to take care of him. The plan was all coming together. What could the church do? They were helpless. So Satan thought. No doubt the church was overwhelmed. No doubt they seen what might be in a hopeless situation. Imagine what was going through their minds. James was dead. Peter was in prison. And to top it off, it was Passover week, the same week that their beloved Jesus Christ had died. Can you imagine what must be going on in their minds right now? They must be feared. But this is what Satan does to us. He loves to create hopeless and helpless situations in our lives, causing us to be distressed so we don't remember from whence comes our help. We forget where our help comes from because we're so confused, so convoluted with all kinds of things. Who is the author of confusion? Satan. He throws that at us. The Old Testament psalmist had it beautifully in Psalm 121. What a gorgeous and beautiful psalm. I would like to read it to you. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will neither slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out. You're coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Yes, this is written to the nation Israel. It's a promise to Israel that he doesn't slumber or sleep, but we can glean from these promises because our Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his promises are true. And we can expect his character to be the same. That's one thing I love about the Lord is his character doesn't change. We can expect him to be the same. He neither slumbers nor sleep. I will lift my eyes up. The psalmist is saying, hey, when I'm in trouble, I know where my help comes from. And I'm going to look to the Lord. I'm going to lift my eyes up. Sometimes we get in circumstances and we forget these promises. We seem to forget where the strength and power comes from. We seem to forget that it's the Lord that keeps us. He's ever awake watching out for us, and he will not allow our foot to be moved. 
What does that mean? It means to be moved from a place of comfort, a place of rest that can only be found in him. In him. This isn't a ticket of get out of jail free card. This isn't a ticket to say get out of affliction free. That's not what this ticket is. This ticket is that I will promise to be with you in the midst of your time. I will be with you in the midst of your affliction, and I will be with you. And if your affliction by my will leads to your death, then I will welcome you with open arms when I see you face to face. That's what the promise is. You know, when we're hopeless and everybody else thinks hopeless, that's when the Lord's at his best. That's when the Lord is at his best in our lives. When we're out of strength, the Lord's strength is just beginning. When we're out of strength and we're done, that's when he acts beautifully. When we see despair and defeat, he sees glory and victory. Church in Jerusalem was at their lowest level. They've all but lost. They've seemed like they don't know what was going on. You probably never felt that way. Probably never felt that things couldn't get much worse. Probably were never at the point where you had no place else to turn. You probably were never at the point where you used up all your options and you didn't know what to do. Every option was used up. This weakness is strength to the Lord. For when we're in this situation, there's only one thing we can do and there's only one thing we should do, and that's pray. Another T-shirt that I used to wear, you remember you've seen it a lot. It's the guy, all you see is the jeans with the great big holes in the jeans of his knees, and it says, pray hard. I love that T-shirt. I love that T-shirt. That's what we're to do. And look at verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. God's people continued to pray. The original language says, the church was an earnest prayer for God for Peter, to God for Peter. And this word earnest means to stretch and to strain. It means agony. It means pain. I get a picture of them praying with agony and with pain. I get a picture of Jesus praying in the Gethsemane. Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. And sweating water and blood. He was straining so hard. He was agonizing over what was about to happen. But nevertheless, thy will be done. This is the type of the prayer that the church should be doing for the pastor who is about ready to be executed in Iran. This is what is being called for for this pastor. If you knew somebody was facing execution today, you would be praying this way. You would be praying this very way. I contend to you, church, right now, there are millions, nay, there are billions of people who are facing death, separation from God, eternity, right now. They have a death sentence on their head, and the death sentence is called sin. Is this the way the church should pray? Absolutely. This is what we're called to do, to pray in this effort, to pray in this vein. This is how we pray. Every week on Wednesday night, we ask for prayer requests. Oh, my goodness, we hear of cancer, unemployment, inability to find jobs, divorce, relationships gone bad, son and daughters astray from the Lord, unsaved relatives. Then we have a nation that has its roots being turned away from when we have abortion, we have murder, we have open immorality. We should be praying with straining and with agony for these things. We need to get reacquainted with the power we have through prayer that the Lord has given us. I wonder what it looks like to God when you get a ragtag group of sinners saved by God's grace together praying. I wonder how God feels about it. I can tell you how the world feels about it. You've got to be kidding me. Pray? That's a terminal weakness. Oh, you Christians, well, you guys, all you do is pray. That's a weakness, man. 
They can only think of what we should do. What should we do to fix the situation? Let's throw more money at it. If they're sick, give them drugs. More drugs. If they're sick, come on, we'll throw more money at it. Pray? Nah, that's the last-ditch effort. No, we can't pray. I always picture them on the Titanic. The Titanic's going like this, and somebody says, should we pray? Man, has it come to that? Yeah, it's come to that. Prayer should be our first resort, not our last effort. Not after you've run around and tried to do everything on your own and you've exhausted everything. Well, you know what? I think I'll pray now. That should be the first thing we do. Look at the transition here. Look at this beautiful transition that's put right before you with one little word, but. Peter was in prison, but in constant prayer, the church offered prayers to him and from God, to God, excuse me. They had lost their dear leader. Their leader was gone. James was gone, and he was a leader of the church. There's a great chance that Peter would be gone too. They would lose another one in their midst. What seemed to be the darkest of all times, not knowing where they should look or where they should turn, but through the strength of the Lord, they were able to get reacquainted with the power of prayer. They prayed. They prayed with earnest. They prayed with feeling. They prayed with passion. They prayed with declaration. They prayed with specificity. They prayed with articulation. They prayed that God would be gloried in their midst. That everything would be according to his will. They prayed constantly. Constantly. There's that Paul again, pray without ceasing. They prayed constantly for this. On August 14th, 1945, after the atomic bombs devastated Hiroshima and Nagasaki, obviously you remember that the Japan's Japanese announced their surrender. You might not remember, but you read about it, which ended World War II. On March 6, 1946, then-President Harry Truman addressed pastors and denominational leaders in Columbus, Ohio. This is what he said to them in 1946. We have just come through a decade in which forces of evil in various parts of the world have been lined up in a bitter fight to banish religion and democracy from the face of the earth. Both are founded on one basic principle, the worth of, and dignity of the individual man and women. Dictatorship, on the other hand, has always rejected that principle. Dictatorship, by whatever name, is founded on the doctrine that the individuals amounts to nothing and that the state is the only thing that counts and that men and women and children are put on earthly solely for the purpose of serving the state. In that long struggle between these two doctrines, the cause of decency and righteousness has been victorious. The right of every human being to live in dignity and freedom, to fix his own relationship to man and to his creator, these again have been saved for mankind. The victory took a toll of human life and treasure so large that it should bring us home forever. How precious, how invaluable our liberty in which we have begun to take for granted is. Now that we have preserved our freedom of conscience and religion, let us make full use of this freedom. Threats of new conflicts, new terror, new destruction call for one thing, without which we are lost. They call for a moral and spiritual awakening. The problems of today will yield nothing less than that kind of revival. All mankind now stands in the doorway to destruction or upon the threshold of the greatest age in history. Only a high moral standard can master this new power and develop it for common good. This is the task for you teachers of religious faith. This is supreme opportunity for the church to continue to fulfill its mission on earth. No other agency can do it unless it is done. We are headed for disaster we would definitely deserve. 
owe for an Isaiah or a St. Paul to reawaken this sick world to its moral responsibilities. The need for this moral awakening applies to all men and women everywhere, but applies particularly to the youth of today for whom the leadership of the world will come. Harry S. Truman. You know, the atom bomb awakened a generation to the possibility of a holocaust, a true nationwide holocaust and a world-ending war. But today, we have swarms of terrorists who are trying to get nuclear weapons and bent on destroying America and Israel. Meanwhile, America's moral and spiritual problems dwarf those of Truman's day. We're in the pits. His words warn us, of course, but God's power is much mightier than an atom bomb. Only God's people can unleash it through extraordinary prayer, faith, and obedience. It's that power that we're being called to today to reacquaint ourselves with the power of prayer, the extraordinary power that we have that the Lord has given us. Let us continue to be a church that prays this way, individually and corporately. Let us continue to be a church that stands up for righteousness and for moral values and moral systems because there is only one God and one mediator before God, Jesus Christ. That is who we serve, and that is our call to the nation who has deaf ears right now. But we will not silence our call. We will continue to shout the name of Jesus Christ for all to hear. It is him and him alone, for he said in one sentence, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. And that is the Christian call. That is our call to duty, our call to honor. Let us never see prayer as a last resort. Let us see it as a priority of our lives. For that's where things are changed. I know that you might be going through something right now that might be one of the most terrible times you've ever had in your lives. I know it. I see it on your faces. There's sickness, death, relationship problems, financial responsibilities, or even worse. But I know that prayer works. I've seen prayer work in your lives, and you've seen it work in the lives of others. We know that if we band together, guide together where the strength of the Lord is, if we reacquaint ourselves to the power of prayer, that things can happen. Most of all, what do we want? We want people to be saved. We want people not to go to hell. We want them to be saved and drawn into the glorious kingdom of God. We might not be able to save our beloved country, folks. I'm sorry, but we might not be able to. Does that mean we stop praying? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It may be biblical that our country goes down. It very well may be. And I don't know when that would happen. If the Lord carries, I don't know when it will happen. Well, we need to be ever praying, ever praying, straining with agony and pain, prayers to reach God the Father. It would come up a memorial before him. Wow, look at that church in North Cayman. They're praying to me, and they've been praying a long time. I'm going to act on their behalf. We want his will to be done, his will in our lives. Nothing else will settle us. Nothing else will satisfy us except his perfect will. How do I get that? Prayer. Prayer, faith, and obedience. That's how we get God's perfect will, by praying to a God who hears and a God who sees. Praying. We need to get reacquainted with the power of prayer that the Lord has given us. You've been listening to Pastor Dave on A Sure Hope. Pastor Dave is working his way through the book of Acts. Did you know that the first martyr for Jesus was a great man of faith? 
His name was Stephen, and he was bold and courageous to proclaim the name of Jesus to others. He wasn't afraid to tell the truth, even when it cost him his life. What courage in the midst of opposition. Do you think you could do the same in this day and age? It's hard to stand up for Jesus when everyone around you is telling you you're intolerant, unloving, and just looking to put people down if you tell them they're doing something wrong. But what makes things right or wrong is firmly rooted in Scripture. It's God's Word that should direct morality, and Stephen was unafraid to go there. If you like this message and would like to catch up on any message you may have missed, head over to AsureHopeRadio.com. There you'll find many messages from the Book of Acts, as well as other series. If you find yourself in the Cape May, New Jersey area, stop in and see us. All the information you need is on our website, location, directions, and service times. And if you prefer to call, you can do that too. Our number is 609-884-5821. Once more, that's 609-884-5821. We'd be happy to answer any questions over the phone. Well, that's all we have time for today, but we've loved spending this time with you. We look forward to the next edition of A Sure Hope.